Okay, let's turn to Pride and Prejudice. I've got a couple of opening thoughts um, and together with some questions that I want to just put out there and pick up again at the end. I don't, I don't want to answer them, but I'd like everybody to hold on to them as we go through this. <coughs> you remember that last week I said that um, that Jane Austen was doing something that no other woman had done before her or since. She, she's written five great novels, five of them. And all of them, um, all of them turn on the peripatia. All of them, every one of them has a plot with a turn, a peripatia. Um, 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 an anagnorisis, a moment of recognition the plot turns and it gives more power to whatever revelations the heroine um, has. So she's following Shakespeare, she's following ancient tragedies, she knows what she's doing, she's a master. Um, what is it? Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Persuasion. Emma. Emma, thanks. Thanks. There's another one, Abbey or something? Yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah. Um, but those are the, 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 na the novels I just mentioned are all great novels. What, what, how many writers have produced more than one or two great works? She produced five. And remember what I said last week. Every one of her novels focuses on marriage. Every one of them. So she's, she, will, she is the last artist who looks back at a Catholic Middle Age in this sense, that she takes love as her theme and marriage as the completion of that love. If you go forward in time, name a writer. Certainly a feminine, George Eliot, doesn't get close to what Jane Austen sees. George Eliot is already post-Christian. She's in a non-Christian world. She doesn't see things the way Austen does. Conrad, James, go where you will. Um, nobody gets close. And in every one of those novels, um, the action is conducted by the interior of the um, narrator. It's generally omniscient. We, we're learned, we learn to see everything through that narrator's eye. And also limited. We're limited to a certain perspective. In Pride and Prejudice, it's Elizabeth's perspective. We see the world through her eyes largely. That's why the end, the turn when it comes, is so powerful because we're not prepared for it. She's bright, she's perceptive, she's witty, she's charming, and then we learn after she receives Darcy's letter that she's very much like other people and in some ways worse because she misjudges a lot and doesn't see it. Because the, we've talked about this, the whole first half of the novel has to do with people's impressions. They have all these impressions, they make judgments. And as we move through the novel, almost anybody who has any intelligence, and not all, not all the characters do, um, anybody who has any intelligence would learn. The more perceptive they are, the more they learn. The two most perceptive people in the novel are Darcy and Elizabeth. Even Bingley and, and uh, Jane, who are really good people, are not nearly as perceptive or proud. So they have less to deal with, less to suffer. So everything that comes to us comes through us from the limited point of view and Pride and Prejudice of Elizabeth. So we're allowed to enter into her blindness thinking we know everything the way she does and then knocked on her back. When she reaches that point and she says, I thought I knew myself 
she says, I realize how foolish I was. That's the moment of her turn and the turning that will continue for the second half of the novel. Um, so with Jane Austen, in a sense, we are, we are given an amazing glimpse of a world that is passing away. We're on the verge of modernity. She knows it. And I'll raise some questions later that I think will make that clear. She knows it. She has this great capacity to see love that's rare for all artists. I think Shakespeare was her greatest teacher. Um, and she writes these five great works, and this is the first one, and she was very critical of it after she finished. She said, too light, too bright. Um, I think Mansfield Park is her great, well, now I'm, I'm, I'm reassessing my view of Pride and Prejudice, but I think Mansfield Park in lots of ways is superior to all her others because her treatment of Fanny um, Price in that novel is close. She's as close to Christ as any woman I've ever met in literature, just rare. Um, <clears throat> but last week I began by saying that we're on the verge of something special and Jane Austen is the one who does it. And I, interestingly, significantly, in each case she does it through the interior of a woman. So we're entering into the psyche of a woman. So I made the claim last week that Jane Austen is, is the one artist who shows us the whole range of women's faults. She just lays them bare. How arrogant they can be, how stupid they can be, how presumptuous they can be. <laughs> Elizabeth has all those qualities. And how extraordinary, good, and Christ-like they can be. And she does that again and again and again and again. Okay. Last week, I read you those um, passages from... Um, from Pope John Paul and von Balthasar. Oh no. Oh yes. This is from John Paul. Um, and it's on our notes, so you can Google it um, if you want to, you know, look more closely into his words. He said, a long road led me to discover the genius of woman, and providence itself saw to it that that time eventually came when I really recognized it and was even, as it were, dazzled by it. I think that every man, whatever his station in life or his life's vocation, must at some point hear those words which Joseph of Nazareth once heard. Do not be afraid to take Mary to yourself. Do not be afraid to take means do everything to recognize that gift which she is for you. Do all husbands recognize the gift that every woman is? Elizabeth, late in the novel, is going to say, the one thing that she most owes Darcy is gratitude. She feels that deeply. She's really wounded by her pride. Does every woman look at her husband in a spirit of being really grateful for whatever, even the pr problems he might make for her, or the problems that a, a woman could make for her husband, because of whatever we learn about ourselves by the way we respond to them. Jane Austen does that masterfully again and again and again and again. I want to come to this um, in a moment with the question, but John Paul had that to say 
about that moment when he realized the, this special glory of womanhood. <laughs> and I want to be careful here. Women have gone into the mark or the workplace today. You all know that. I mean, the the feminist movement is underway and probably in some ways dying out. But how many women today are cloning men, doing what men do, shooting, killing? Most of the movies that I see in which women are heroic, they're doing exactly what men do. They beat other men up. They show they're better than men by. You know, they can do what Arnold Schwarzenegger does with a machine gun and shoot off 50 rounds and not get hit herself. <laughs> that drives me nuts in men movies, now seeing women do it. So um, keep that in mind when I read this from Von Balthasar. He says, where the mystery of the Marian feminine character of the church is obscured or abandoned, there Christianity must become unisexual that is homosexual, that is to say, all male. One of von Balthasar's concerns about the modern church is to the extent that it becomes bureaucratic, structured, it becomes formed by constructs of thought, male. The feminine affective is gone. Women become like men. So the church becomes unisexual, homosexual. The church since the council that has to a large extent put off her mystical characteristics. She has become a church of permanent conversations, organizations, advisory commissions, congresses, synods, commissions, parties, pressure groups, functions, structures and restructuring, sociological experience. He could go on. I'm sure you, you know, he stops. I, I, I hope you see the point. I think every one of us could add 20 words to that list. Restructuring, social experiments, statistics, that is to say, more than ever, a male church, if perhaps one should not say, a sexless entity in which woman may gain for herself a place in the extent that she is ready herself to become such an entity, that is, a male. Think about trans going on, I mean, openly now. Um, um, Anyway, one of the things I said in my opening notes last week is to remember this question that I sent. One of the things <laughs> that a woman cannot define herself as a woman, God, it just floors me. One of the most obvious things to say about the difference between men and women is biologically they're different. A woman has a womb and can conceive and bear a child. Does that have any influence in the way that a woman sees things or feels things or not? Because the question that I want to ask here and get an, I really want to put it to you when we're done is, could a man have written this novel, Pride and Prejudice? Um, I'm not going to answer that myself, but I want to leave it. Could a man have done this? Or is it distinctively woman? And more to the point, because you know that the, the, the editor who did the book is a feminist, uh, presenting a feminist view on Elizabeth. She calls her um, a post-revolutionary um, proto- feminist. Her, her, I, I would encourage all of you to read the introduction. It's really, it's important to see what somebody can do with this. She's arguing that, that Elizabeth is a prototype of a sort of acti activist and an agent for social change. That's a perspective of an activist. So she's promoting her because she says Jane Austen is promoting that kind of figure. Is Jane Austen a feminist or is she showing us something distinctively feminine. Can we name it? Because I'm going to say that's at the heart of this novel and every one of her books.
I'm going to say my argument is she's not a feminist at all, but it will take some doing to get there. So, But keep in mind what John Paul said, that there is this glory to women. Um, do we have a proper sense of that glory in our world today? Can we name it? And um, Balthazar says that the church is, to the extent that it's becoming bureaucratic, it's becoming male. Um, it lives in um, abstract concepts of the mind. The intuitive, the mystical things that are traditionally associated with women are disappearing. So how do we see Jane Austen? Um, I'm going to make this argument, and I want to get it out of the way now, and I'm going to try to do this and not give away the story. When I was younger, um, the, the author, or the editor that I most admired of Jane Austen's works was a guy called um, Tony Tanner. I tried to get it, um, and it, it's out of print. In fact, the Penguin edition advertises itself as having Vivian Jones as its editor and Tony Tanner, because they put him in the back just to, because he was associated with Jane Austen. I've ordered two copies and neither one of them have Tony Tanner. That really upset me. Penguin owes us money. Um, but I found an edition that has it. When I was younger and first taught it, I so admired that guy. He, 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 he brought out aspects of the Jane Austen novels that I'd read in ways that no other critic did. I so admired him. And the other night, Suzanne had gone to sleep and I managed to get a copy of one of those old editions with Tony Tanner doing the introduction. I read it. Um, and I read it after I read Vivian Jones again. I think Jones absolutely misses the point in Pride and Print. She, she's trying to make it into a feminist novel when it's not. And I read Tony Tanner with great expectations and was disappointed. Both of them, I'm going to say this, you may come back, push back later. Both of them missed. They missed it. Both of them missed it. I'm going to give away the novel right now. I'm going to give away the novel here. Um, both of them missed it. But so the heart of this novel is this. This novel is fundamentally about a love that's Christ-like in its form. If you look at every relationship in this book, every marriage, there is an acquisitive, self-serving aspect to that marriage. Women enter into marriage in the expectations of getting financial help. So somebody will take care of them. And we know from Wickham that that's true or can be true for men. There's not, a, there's not a marriage in this book that doesn't have an acquisitive, self-serving aspect to it, except Jane and Darcy's, or, or Elizabeth and Darcy's, and Jane and Bingley. And I'll, I'll make the case, so be patient if you don't, if you've, if you've got trouble with that, wait a little bit, okay, because I, I want to go through the book. So indirectly, what Jane Austen is doing is critiquing an acquisitive society. That's her world. It's mercantile, it's acquisitive, it looks back to a landed aristocracy that's dying, so that people live off of money they've inherited, or people like the gardeners who come into money because they've earned it. Okay? That old society is dying out. The society that she's presenting before us is acquisitive, it's mercantile. It's got money, it's mine. All of the women that we've looked at in the novel, besides the, those that I just excluded, want to get a quote, unquote, a husband. 
The object of women is to get a husband. It's like an object. Do Elizabeth, does Elizabeth want to get a husband in anything she does? Does Darcy want to get a wife in the same sense? Is everybody following me? So this is the stunning thing about this novel. It's by means of those two couples that she critiques every other relationship in that novel and finds it wanting. And it's leaving me with a, a really serious question here. And, and, and again, I don't want to get to the answer right now. Um, it's, it's hard for me to come out of this novel without feeling convicted. Every, every relationship comes up short. I'll make that clear shortly if you'll just be patient. Every, every one. But you cannot say that about Darcy and Elizabeth or um, Bingley and Jane. So the, the whole action, the whole point of this novel is to lay bare a whole society in which marriage is at its center and show the shortcomings of marriage, the views of marriage. That they all partake of this world that they've grown into. People go into marriages, whether they're aware of it or not, with something acquisitive motivating them. So marriage is lacking. Um, now, this will be the one last question that I want to jump into the book. Why is she writing the novel? When you read it, do you feel her moralizing at us, pointing a finger? I feel convicted. I mean, I would think if anybody were reading this well, we'd, we would question our relationship with our wife or our husband and wonder, is there something of that in my own character? Am I aware of it? Um, is she moralizing? Collins loves to moralize. You know that. He wants to read moral stuff and point a finger. Is she moralizing? What motivated this novel? Is it, is it to propose a feminist view? Or is it something else? And finally, my last question is, because I've already confessed this to you, I was not going to read this book and have read it, and I'm stunned by it. What does Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, because everybody sees Jane Austen as a secular writer, she doesn't deal with transcendent or demons like Dostoevsky, or, she seems to be a secular writer. She, she, her subject is held to a secular world. You're all aware of that. Her world is a world of manners. We don't go to church, we don't hear religious terms, we don't see anything religious going on openly. This is a world of manners. So what in the world does Jane Austen have to offer our faith? Big question. That's one of the reasons I did not want to touch this work, because in my own mind I couldn't justify it. Now I think I can, but I want to wait. What does this have to do with faith? It's a mannered world. Does it have anything to teach us about our faith? I'm going to say yes it does to an amazing degree. But those are the questions, okay? If you just hold off on them, I mean, I, what I want to do is get into the book now and, and come back to them when we end. Any need for clarification or questions that you want to ask before we start? I'm going to say this is an amazing book and I'm ashamed that I didn't include it on St. Francis, but... They can listen to this. Huh? They can listen to this. They can, they, some of us can read it. God. I want to ask you why Bob's not here. You know, I... I know why he's not here. Because he didn't read the book. Yeah. And, if, and if you knew... Because he told me. 
I've, I've actually written them a couple. I know. I, I'm, Bob, I'm more aware of that than you are. I actually wrote them a couple times, urging them, because I, I've got that concern. You know, that, I guess he didn't watch the movies either. Huh? <laughs> he what? I said, I guess he didn't watch the movies either. <laughs> anyway, I really miss him. If, Bob's, if Bob listened to this, Bob, and I'm saying this from my heart, I, I miss him. When he's not here, I miss him. But you told us multiple times all through these four years, even if you're not reading, we'll get something from it. Yes. Thank you. That's what, I, that's what I'm doing. Oh, you get out of here. I'm just not, Bob, I'm not going to hear you. <laughs> Don't you believe that? Yes. From your own experiences of the class? And that's what he's doing. Oh, do not, will you not excuse him, please? I'm going to be. I'm going to be especially tough on. I'm going to be. I'm ex-marine. I'm going to be especially tough on men. For a man not to. I mean, this. This to me is an extraordinary, extraordinary, brilliant book. And it. And it go here. And the other th interesting thing, it, it goes to our sex. We don't see sex in Jane Austen. We don't see a sexual act. She doesn't allude to it. And the whole modern world is a guck with sex. Um, she doesn't deal with it. But she does deal with marriage in a way that's rare and she does it again and again and again in every one of her novels. My, my concern is do we, can we learn from her and learn to see those things in our social world um, from what we've learned from her. And I'd say anybody, male or female, who reads will learn to see the world in themselves better. She's just that good. I'm going to say this one last time and then I'll put it to rest. She gave me my domestic eyes. I mean, I'd become aware of that but when I read. I'd never seen a writer so open up the domestic world, the home life of marriage. It was hard to read her without feeling that. Not, nothing I'd read. Not Dante, not Shakespeare. Shakespeare in the comedies, but not like Jane Austen. The women writers come into their own in the 19th century. All of them. Jane, George Eliot, you know, Austen. And they open up a view on the domestic life that men haven't. And I think she does it to a degree no other woman has. So, and, and I put her off the list. And now I'm ashamed of myself because I've seen things in this last reading that just blew me away. But here, let's start, okay? Any questions on my questions? That There's a number that I've asked. The most important for me is how does this relate to our faith? Is there anything Christian to this novel? Because on the surface, it's all about a world of manners. Behave. Be decorous. Be proper. And you know my words on respectability. You've heard my own thoughts about modern respect. Every, every right, Dostoevsky, Hawthorne, Melville, are all critiquing respectability because of the sins that are hidden behind it. Jane Austen's taking us behind that world and not blowing it away. She's actually affirming it in a way that reveals something about women. There's something so important in this book for all of us, men or women. I'm gonna ask Bob out to dinner and spend three hours talking about Pride and Prejudice over a meal. By the way, I, I apologize, you know, we, we had planned to, to do meals together as groups and I started making dates and then got sick and holidays came. Um, and now I'm actually worried about existential crises down the road somewhere. So here, let's look. I want everybody to look at the structure for a minute. And I want to look at it in two ways. If you go to my notes, you'll see them. 
One of the most important things to see about form, and you know I've used that word a lot, and form has numerous meanings. Form in its best sense means it's, it's what's at the center of the thing that, that informs, infuses itself into the whole thing. It's what makes that thing what it is, a man, a book, a tree. It's its form that makes it what it is. One of the most important ways to think about form in terms of Jane Austen's novel, this work, since that's our, our work right now, is that it's, um, it's the interiority of a woman that conducts the whole action. We're, le we're learning to see an external world in terms of its effect, its effect on the interior of a woman. So while we're reading through it, we're aware of her feelings constantly. So underline that, okay? It's crucial. St. Thomas Aquinas used the term, um, he, he was defining different kinds of knowledge, different forms of knowledge. And one of the forms of knowledge he called connatural, connatural knowledge. Knowledge by emotion, knowledge by sympathy. And if that sounds ridiculous for a moment, hold on. Because lots of, lots of us would say in response to a woman when she gets emotional, knock it off, quiet down, quiet yourself, or something like that. Um, <laughs> right, finish your notes. <laughs> Wait, you're supposed to be doing that in a spirit of charity, not getting back. <laughs> <laughs> um, knowledge by sympathy. Just as an example, in Julius Caesar, um, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, um, Brutus's wife comes to him, and you know there's a plot to assassinate Caesar. That's what it's about, and, and Brutus is involved in it. Ju um, Brutus's wife comes to him in the in the in the middle of the evening and says, "What's wrong? What's going on with you?" How many women have asked men that at a time when something was going on and they didn't talk about it, but they knew something by knowledge? Is it definite? Is it concrete? No. It's not like a scientific thing where you can get down to a detail. But she knows something's wrong. Wouldn't you all agree? And, and, and I think probably women are better at that than men because women are emotionally more sensitive than men are. Men have a harder time with their emotions. Unless they're raised on poetry. <laughs> stop me. Somebody stop me. <laughs> um, is everybody following? He calls it knowledge um, by simply what he calls connatural. It's connatural. It's an emotional link. I'm going to say that in Pride and Prejudice, we enter into Elizabeth's emotional life but we know it conceptually because she gives it words. So it allows us not to just feel the way I'm talking about, just not emotionally respond. It allows us to understand that we can grasp that feeling as we're feeling it. Is everybody following? It's not like scientific knowledge. It's not like it has an objectivity or you can prove it in some way. But we enter into her interior, um, her emotions, but in a way that allows us to grasp them conceptually because she gives words to them. How many women can do that as well as she did? Or men? 
for that matter. Is everybody following? So one of the ways in which I'm using the word form here is that we enter into that interior life and we live it for a sustained novel. That's 300 pages of entering the life of a woman and I would say coming out of it glad for the experience because what she does is remarkable. Okay? So from another perspective the book is an affirmation of something not feminist, not defined in terms of political structures. It's, it's characterized in terms of affection, love, of something feminine. Okay. Now take a look at my, um, my notes if you can for a second. You remember in the first set of notes that I gave you, um, I outlined the structure by, by giving you three squares. Um, um, Longbourn, Netherfield, and um, I think it was London, or if you go back to your notes, you'll get it. What was it? Yeah, Meriton, that's right. Um, yeah, the world of Meriton and the soldiers and everything else. Does everybody remember? So I, I wanted to show, the, the point I was making there is I wanted to show that in terms of human consciousness, just awareness, that spiritually the form of the novel is a moving out. So as, as we experience Elizabeth, we start with her domestic world, it's a truth universally told, her brother's going nuts, Bingley comes in, he's got a fortune, all the women want to get married. And Mrs. Bingley wants to get her daughters married. But the whole movement of that first volume is out from that domestic world to Netherfield. Is that right? Yeah, Netherfield and then Meriton. And remember that it helps go there because Jane, Jane Austen, God, she's just masterful. Remember, Jane goes to visit, but she ends up getting sick and she draws Elizabeth there. And then they return home, but the balls continue. And it ends with Collins proposing and Jane or Elizabeth refusing and then proposing to Charlotte. So we're getting a completed movement. That's the first volume. It, in terms of, a, of music, that's a sonata form. You've got one voice, one thing, right? The second volume um, picks up um, here, if you, look at my, if you look at my notes for tonight, the gardeners take um, Jane to London and Elizabeth goes to visit Charlotte at um, Hunsford. So we've left the Longbourn world again to go out, and it's while she's at Hunsford and Rosings that we first encounter um, that landed aristocracy with all of its corruptions and decay in Lady de Bourgh. The, the awful arrogance, that she, has, she doesn't have to work, she doesn't have to do anything, she's got this power. It would be a, a, a feather in her bonnet if she could get Darcy to marry um, sorry no 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 it's 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 her it's her daughter it's her own daughter it's, it's her daughter because she would combine Pemberley with Rosings her estate in terms of wealth and land would increase enormously. So that's been the design on her mind and her sister's, my Darcy's mother, forever. But we enter that world. 
and we once again we see it through Elizabeth's eyes so she's presenting things as they are um, but um, it, it's hard to feel that they're not being parodied because all of Lady Catherine's faults are her arrogance her presumption her wanting to tell everybody how to live their lives you know it just goes on and on and um, it's there while they're at Huntsford and Rosings that Darcy pr um, proposes to Elizabeth and she is horrified because up to that point she's hated him the following day he presents her with that letter clarifying and it's really it's, it's an amazing expression of maleness and she she's so right on um, Darcy is almost nowhere more male than in that letter where he expresses a contrition for the things that she's pointing at and also his sense of justice for the things he believed that he was doing rightly it's absolutely male to, to do that and he leaves and he leaves um, Elizabeth with that when she says to us I thought I knew myself until now and now I realize I never did that's the the peripatia the turn the first turn of other turns in the novel and you know that um, while she's there um, see isn't it there um, that wait she hasn't heard about Lydia yet right they go home and Lydia is invited by the Forsters to go to Brighton so she leaves and um, Mrs. Gardner wants to ease Elizabeth because she knows something about what's going on and invites her to join her and her husband on a tour of Derbyshire where Pemberley um, is situated. So um, the second part represents an, a further expansion of consciousness. We're going out into a larger world. Now, don't put this off. I'm describing something in terms of plot. What does this have to do with faith and reason? If we stay isolated in our own world, are we undercutting our faith in some way? As our consciousness expands and we grow out into the world and we learn more about the world, don't we learn more about ourselves and don't we have an opportunity to grow in our faith? Because right now Elizabeth is going into areas of society that are, she's not had them before, they're changing the way she sees things and it's at a time when she's been humbled and from this point on she's going to continue to be humbled again and again and again with everything that happens. So she's entering a world, a larger world. So the movement of the novel is from domestic life, Longbourn, Netherfield, um, Meryton, um, um, to London, and um, Rosings and Hunsford, and um, back home, and then finally to Derbyshire, and that old world of a landed aristocracy. I think that's a fair description of the of what the you know the word that I use is action the plot the whole plot remember Aristotle said every plots an imitation of an action we have to understand that action that's a description of the action is everybody okay want to change or qualify or add whatever it is I'm leaving out volume three so Volume one, first voice. Volume two, she goes out into that world. We have another movement, and it's in that movement that Darcy proposes. So her whole hatred of him 
comes cracking. I mean, she's firm and embarrassed that he would do that, and when she gets the letter, she's humiliated. So she's entered a world, it's fractured her inwardness. She's learning to see herself in a way that she hadn't expected. Um, so a first voice, second. Collins proposed in the first one, Darcy proposes in the second. Two very, very different worlds, okay? Um, she goes to Hunsford and Rosie, and it's there that he um, proposes. Um, she goes home, and um, it's, let's see, it's there, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Lydia gets to go to Brighton then, and um, Elizabeth agrees to go with the gardeners to Pemberley. So that's the end of the second movement, the second volume, okay? Volume three. If you turn, if you turn to my notes, you'll see again diagrams that I, I hope are helpful. Yeah. In volume three, remember, she, um, she sets off to Pemberley anxiously because she doesn't want to encounter Darcy. She's embarrassed at herself, what she's learned. She still holds him in something of a negative light, but she goes, and Darcy shows up unexpectedly. Um, she doesn't know what to do. They're both embarrassed. He asks her, I think it's then, if she would like to meet his um, sister. And she's flattered and grateful that he isn't holding a grudge because in her own heart she hated him. For him to be that kind to make an opening is another humbling experience for her. And they agree. Um, um, they make arrangements to have a meal together and it's at that point she receives the letters from Jane telling her that um, Lydia has eloped, right? and she rushes home. She tells Darcy she's embarrassed to do that because here, it's just the humbling that's going on here. I, I hope everybody's holding on to it. This is the man she hated because he was so above. She's learned to see that there's something else in it and she learns from the, the housekeeper when she's at Pemberley all these good things about Darcy and all the bad things about Wickham. So she's having to evaluate the entire way she's looked at the world. And then she learns that Lydia's eloped and she tells Darcy. She has to tell the man that she held in contempt because of the contempt she believes he will feel for her because it confirms all of the worst suspicions about the family. What a, there's something lacking in that family um, in the way the, and, and it's especially true of the father as we've learned by this point. She has to go home. When she goes home, she learns that Mr. Gardner had already set off for London and her dad sets off too to see if they can find um, Lydia. Um, shortly afterwards, Lady de Burgh comes to pay them a visit and calls Elizabeth's side in this preemptory, arrogant, despotic. I'm being nice to her. I can't speak the words I'd like to use describing her and I'm sure you, just an awful, what a witch. Just, you know, she calls her aside, berates her, treats her like Elizabeth should do whatever she wants. She's doing everything she can to put to rest her, what she's heard that there's a rumor that Darcy is interested in Elizabeth and the two might get married. She wants to make it clear to Elizabeth that Elizabeth cannot do that, as if she could impose her will. And you know that she's used to imposing her will on everybody. 
It's one of the embarrassments of the novel because Collins is so fawning to her. He's a clergyman and he owes his livelihood to her. She makes it clear to Lady DeVerg she'll have nothing to do with what she says. Um, and that gets back to Darcy and it reinforces a belief in him that there may still be something there. Um, because um, she didn't go along with Lady DeVerg's pressuring. Collins, or I mean Bingley arrives, he returns to um, um, what's the, huh? He returns to his what's this? Huh? No, Longbourn's the Bennett's the Netherfield. Huh? Netherfield, thanks. Um, um, Bingley returns to Netherfield with Darcy and they come and visit and a dinner is arranged and they meet and it's at that point that Bingley <laughs> the efforts that Mrs. Bingley makes to leave the two of them alone is embarrassing to the whole family but um, but it finally has its effect. Bingley has her alone and proposes and shortly after that you know that Elizabeth and Darcy begin to warm to each other and they have that walk where um, it's clear to them that the love that that she's come to love him, um, to see him in a different light, and that he has never stopped loving her. It's then that he proposes, um, Lydia comes home for the wedding, even though she wasn't going to be allowed at the house, they make that one exception. She and um, Wickham go north, and um, Bingley and Jane, and Darcy and Elizabeth marry. And they settle in Pemberley, and Bingley moves from Netherfield to be close by. So the movement of the third novel is this. She goes to Pemberley, that whole world opens to her and she realizes what she missed. That there's this extraordinary, beautiful, tasteful world. And she learns from the housekeeper that Darcy, what a virtuous man he is, how good he is, how much he has to protect because of what he has. Um, she goes, um, um, back home to Longbourn and here's one of the things that I want to emphasize. She goes to Pemberley, comes home. At Longbourn, while she's there, so if we see the first two volumes as moving out from Longbourn into Netherfield and uh, Meryton and into London and Hunsford, um, the movement in volume three is from Pemberley back home, but once they're home, that whole outer world descends on them. Bingley comes home. Collins is back in their life. Darcy comes back and proposes. Bingley proposes. So that whole enlarged world that went out, that, that they opened to, suddenly comes back to Longbourn. So, and there's nothing but tensions because at the center of it is Lydia's elopement. So they come back to a family situation with nothing but shame. So this is not the Longbourn that we started with. This is a family that has now entered into sorrows of shame and have to deal with it. And you know that it's in that context that Bingley proposes to Jane and Darcy proposes to. So in the midst of this shame, when she would think that he would have every reason for refusing her to look down on her, um, he proposes and she learns that not only has he proposed that he's never stopped loving her, but he was the one who settled things with Wickham. He took care of the finances, made, um, made sure of the arrangement, and took care of, of Lydia's, um, 
to the degree that it could, I mean, it protected her respectability. I wouldn't say it saved it because she's beyond her respectability is, you know, it's, it's so darkened. But he does everything he can to protect her and the Bennets. And it leaves um, Elizabeth even more deeply grateful than she was before. And you know that the novel ends there. So that, in, in brief, is the plot, the, the action. So the action is from innocence to experiences, from impressions to reflections and sorrows, to shame, a sorrow across, I'm going to call it, and a resolution a happiness that comes out of that suffering, if I can put it that way. Let me stop. I want to, I want to read some passages just to get us in the book. But before I do, any questions or comments or anything you want to add? Because I've probably left some things out here. Anything? Remember Aristotle's definition of a plot? In fact, let me put it this way because I just don't want to miss this. A plot is an imitation of an action. The plot are the external events. This happened, this happened, this happened. But every one of those plots reveals an internal movement, inwardly. That's what that action is. So I'm trying to describe this action faithful to the external events, but also suggest that there's a spiritual movement, a change spiritually that's taken place in all the Bennets except Lydia. And just hard to read. I'm sure you all read the section when she came home and talked about nothing but her wedding and with no sense of what she did or the effect on her family. It's just painful mom, to read. She doesn't change either. Yeah. Who? The mother. Right. Right, right. Zero shame. She's bragging about what Lydia Who? Is. Mrs. Bennett. Oh, right. She's bragging about her married daughter and all this stuff. It's so mortifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good word. Is everybody catching the, I mean, is that clear enough, the, the, the movement, the action? It's from innocence to impressions and judgments to recognitions, to seeing that judgments are wrong, they're learning, and then they enter sorrows, and finally the sorrows are answered as well as they could be in a real world. Animosity toward Whitcomb from all he had done to his sister and other things. He's the one that was the most benevolent for Elizabeth's sister and her sister. Let me ask this now just because you, you mentioned that, because I'm not sure that I'd get to it later. Because you know that I'm, my argument right now is that this novel is fundamentally, first and foremost, above everything, about a love that is Christ like. It grows in humility. It, it becomes selfless. It's not acquisitive. They don't set out to do that. In fact, I'm going to give all the reasons to, to make clear that Austin does everything she can to make clear this marriage is a, a very different kind of marriage. That's why I'm saying it's sort of convicting because every other relationship of the book is touched by this acquisitive note, comfort, security, wealth, um, Whose love is greater, more self-sacrificing, Elizabeth's or Darcy's? Darcy, you all agree? 
If you all would go, don't do it now, but if you all would go to the end of the notes. I've, I've taken some passages from um, Vivian Jones' um, introduction. She says, romantic love makes individual happiness both the motivation and the goal of moral and social change. And she sees Elizabeth as instrumental in that social change. She will end her, her introduction saying, this plot formula seems to give women and their values and the values they represent a lot more power and responsibility, but it's a power of a carefully circumscribed kind. The social order has been modified, not radically altered. Austin's post-revolutionary achievement in Pride and Prejudice is to put Wallenstonescroft, who's an early feminist, by writing still one of the most perfect, most pleasurable, most, most subtle of romantic stories. Um, but she says, um, the power to motivate and reward change lies with the women. As, as in the standard popular romance, the hero is ultimately shown to be loving and therefore lovable. The desire for the heroine, he is transformed from an aggressive and potentially threatening figure into an ally and a husband. She sees the, 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 the instrument of social change, what we call today change makers, is in the women um, and Elizabeth. Is Elizabeth, does she have any motives, or Austin in the way she presents her, to, to see her as an instrument of change? <coughs> if that's not, I mean, let me wait because I'll come back to it. Are there changes, that, does love change anything? In the, in the book? Wait on that. I think those are important questions for uh, to ask. What's the difference, is there a difference between Elizabeth's form of love and Darcy's is important? Um, how, do we, how do we look at that love? Anyway, let me read a couple of passages and then I want to come back and, and return to these questions and see what you have to say about them. On page two of my notes, very quickly, some of the larger perspectives to keep in mind. Collins, I've said, is a parody of the church. It should be independent of the social world. He's absolutely dependent on Lady de Burg. He's a comic, comic sad, horribly comic parody of what the church should be. The love between Darcy and Elizabeth unfolds in the context of a world in transition. We're watching an old world die out, a one aristocratic, and one that's driven by wealth and mercantile values, independence, self-initiative. In this world, marriages exhibit a graduation of values, combining natural virtues with a capacity for a disinterested love. If we were to rank the characters, I'd say Darcy and Elizabeth are highest, Bingley and Jane, the gardeners, and go down the line. And what's interesting is that what distinguishes Darcy and Elizabeth is they are both so intelligent, they're both so bright, they're, um, they're gifted individuals, and they're proud. And they're the ones who have most overcome because of their gifts. They're extremely talented and they're extremely prideful. And that's part of the value of her that she shows the whole range of marriages, of relationships. Um, do, do Bingley and Jane have to deal with the degree of pride that Darcy and Elizabeth do? Does, is Bingley at, at all close to being as careful of things as Darcy? He's casual, he's, you know, brush offing. So we're, she's showing us degrees of natural talents, natural gifts to the individuals because people are gifted differently. 
and showing the, the cost of them. Where there's greater intelligence, there's going to be greater pride, there's going to be more to overcome. Um, but at the center of them is this marriage that has, no, that I can't see, any taint of acquisitiveness or self-interest. Mary Bennett, to me, is a parody of Wallenstone's, Wallenstone Croft's modern rational woman. Jane Austen knows exactly what she's doing. It, you know, Mary is, sees herself as a very rational person. She reads moral books. She's always pointing up morals. She can't respond to anything without rationalizing it in her head. But she doesn't have a heart. She's not as susceptible to her emotions. And Jane and Elizabeth both say, and the, the words are, I'm quoting them, um, a love with a marriage without affection won't have everything a marriage could have. But it's absolutely crucial that a man and woman open their hearts to each other, even though that means there's going to be suffering. Um, the marriage between Darcy and Elizabeth um, is a paradigm by which to measure and evaluate the possibilities of love. All the other marriages have an inquisitive, self-serving motive to get a husband, to get a wife. Now, how does, how does Austin do this? How does she show that the motivations behind Darcy and Elizabeth are not acquisitive? Neither one of them sets out to marry. The, Darcy does. But he does it <laughs> assuming, of course, she will want him because he's so good. So he goes into this with this awful pride thinking, of course she's going to marry me. Look how good I am. So the Darcy that ends up marrying her is not the Darcy who began. So the couple that comes together is, is not a couple setting out to get a marriage. His motives from the beginning were love, even though they were tainted. And he risks everything without telling her so he can say, look how good I am. He does it all selflessly. Um, so what we see at the end is a man and a woman coming together, learning to put themselves away for the good of the other. That's the definition of charity from the church. How does Austin set it up at the bottom of two? Elizabeth refuses, refuses Collins, then Darcy. He writes a letter setting facts straight. She has to learn to see things she'd not before. They're both humbled. Jane goes to London. Bingley does nothing about it. And Darcy, thinking he's doing right, doesn't let Bingley know that Jane's there. Elizabeth continues to reflect. So, Jane's not looking for a husband. Bingley's not looking for a wife. Right? Neither one of them is setting out. Um, they're not doing things to promote their own interests. Elizabeth continues to reflect on her actions, growing more and more humble as she goes along. She visits Pemberley and learns from the housekeeper about Darcy Ann um, Wickham. She learns Lydia has run off, tells Darcy, returns home. She's visited by Lady de Bourgh, who tells her to stay away. Neither one of them is pursuing the other in any active way to promote their own interests. So here's my question. Is what's happening because they want to get a husband or a wife? How much of it, this is interesting, how much of it depends on chance or accident? Meeting Darcy when he wasn't expected. Lady de Bourgh coming. And give, she, that, that's one of the great irony. You know that, that motto about evil undoing itself, that evil does? She wants to do everything she can to prevent that marriage. She's probably one of the most instrumental things in bringing it about because 
She's so stupid, so bad. Here, I want to read a couple of things and then I want to close on, I want to turn it over to you in those questions. Turn to page 229. It's at the end of, it's the end of chapter, I've read this before, it's the last chapter of the volume, volume two, chapter 19. Had Elizabeth's opinion been all drawn from her own family, she would have formed very pleased, she would not have formed a very pleasing picture of conjugal felicity. If spousal happiness depended on a family, we would all go to ruin because there are always problems in our families, always. But here's an instance of her growth. She's assuming the worst. If marriage depended on our family, there's no way she's going to get married. Who would want to marry her with all the problems she's got in her family? Is that clear? Her father captivated by youth, he talks about the way he was too taken by beauty and what it's done. Down below, um, she endeavored to forget what she could not overlook and to banish from her thoughts that continual breach of conjugal obligation and decorum, which in exposing his wife to the contempt of her own children was so highly reprehensible. But she'd never felt so strongly as now the disadvantages which must attend the children of so unsuitable a marriage. If she had any hope before, she has less of it now. The more she looks at her family, the more hopeless prospects of marriage seem. Okay. On page 236, this is her visit to Pemberley. Very first chapter in volume three. She had never seen a place for which nature had... So, um, Vivian Jones, the, the, um, the editor, says, what's an issue for Jane Austen in the relationship between nature and nurture? Nature and nurture? What nature gives us and what nurture, what we can do? So, uh, reading books when you could be home on a Tuesday night, learning all the things that nurture can do to help what nature's given us? Because Jane Austen's so clear that nature gives in different, degree, different grades. But what people do with that can help or not. Jones's position is the issue for Austin is nurture, what you can make happen by your own will. That's not true for Austin. For Austin, like Shakespeare, she started with what nature gave and looks at what human beings do with it by their own free will. The good things they do, the bad things they do. She looks at Pemberley and she says, she had never seen a place for which nature had done more or where natural beauty had been so little counteracted by an awkward taste. Because she's been seeing that everywhere. She saw it at Collins, she saw it at Lady Berg's. They were all of them warm in their admiration and at that moment she felt that to be mistress of Pemberley might be something. Go down, the rooms were lofty and handsome, their furniture suitable to the fortunes of their proprietor. But Elizabeth saw with admiration of his taste that it was neither gaudy nor, um, nor uselessly fine, with less of splendor and more of real elegance. He's, he's showing what Aristotle would call the mean. It's not, it's not overdone at one end, it's not underdone, it's moderate, it's tasteful. Um, 241. So she's there, and suddenly Darcy arrives. Now, um, where'd she go? Alexi. God, I need her here. She was in the restroom. 
she? Go tell her to hurry. <laughs> no. No. Um, here, look. 240, 241. It's, it's chapter 3 in the middle. Elizabeth is walking over Pemberley, and suddenly who arrives? Darcy. They were within 20 yards of each other, and so abrupt was his appearance that it was impossible to avoid his sight. Their eyes instantly met, and the cheeks of each were overspread with the deepest blush. He absolutely um, started, and for a moment seemed unmovable from surprise. But shortly recovering himself, advanced towards the party and spoke to Elizabeth, if not in terms of perfect composure, at least of perfect civility. She's absolutely distracted by his kindness to her, because she's looked at herself as being rude to him, and now she's ready to be apologetic. And he, he is openly courteous. Um, but here's where I wanted to go, the bottom of 241. The others then join, Lexi, hear this, because I've been trying to stall. I'm just gonna send somebody into the bathroom. <laughs> the others then joined her and expressed their admiration of his figure. So this is when Darcy and Elizabeth see each other again for the first time after this long interval. But Elizabeth heard not a word. Now, in this thing, free indirect discourse here. Free indirect discourse means this. The writer is describing a situation as it objectively occurs. It's there. The, 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 the man got angry. The woman wept. Okay? That's narrative discourse. You're describing events. As, as, and good artists do it with such detail that we're surprised because we can see it ourselves. It's one of the beauties of art. But indirect, in, indirect free indirect in discourse is a discourse introduced into the narrative that shows that the narrative has entered into the life of that character. So what the narrator is doing is not giving quotes saying, Elizabeth said this, Darcy said this. The narrator is still speaking in the narrative voice, but expressing thoughts that belong to that character as if they were a part of the narrator. It's as if the indwelling that we've talked about in the, the Trinity, the indwelling between the persons of the Trinity, right? They're all one with each other, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We saw it in Dante when Dante and Beatrice were becoming one with each other, and that was happening with the number of people they met. I am in Godding you, you are in Godding me. Do you remember all those reflexive verbs? Something was happening to take in that world into themselves. The closer they moved to Christ, the more that happened. Okay? Is that clear? So free and direct discourse is the narrator describing something external, but in a way that's peculiar to the interior of a character, as if that interior became a part of the narrator. That's unheard of. It's like indwelling. It's like you're becoming one with another person. She does it easily, often. She's the first one to give it this kind of pressure. Once again, a feminine sensibility? Is this peculiar to women? Why weren't men doing it? This is a part of her narrative. She was overpowered by shame and vexation. Her coming there was the most unfortunate, the most ill-judged thing in the world! Exclamation point. We're already getting close to something inside her, just by the language. In what a disgraceful light might it not strike so vain a man? It might seem as if she had purposely thrown herself in his way. Again, those are her words inside. 
But why did she come? Who's speaking that? But it's not, it's the narrator. Are you all following? There's no quotes. In what a disgraceful light might it not strike so vain a man? Those are her interior questions. In what a disgraceful light might it not strike so vain a man? It might seem as if she had purposely thrown herself in his way again. Those are her thoughts given objective form. And, and notice this. Oh, why did she come? Or why did he trust thus come a day before he was expected? The exclamatory character of those characters are hers. Had they been only 10 minutes sooner, they should have been beyond the reach of his discrimination. For it was plain that he was that moment arrived, that moment alighted from his horse or his carriage. She blushed again and again over the perverseness of the meeting. Those are objective descriptions. In his behavior so strikingly altered, what could it mean that he should even speak to her was amazing. But to speak with such civility, to inquire after family, exclamation point, never in her life had she seen his manner so dignified, never had he spoken with such gentleness as on this unexpected me. I could go on. It's an amazing technique because what she's doing is describing a character objectively while incorporating in that narrative speech the emotions of that character as if they've been internalized. And I'm going to ask this again. Feminine? Masculine? How much of this belongs to what I called earlier um, connatural knowledge? Knowledge by emotion. Um, <clears throat> we don't have time to cover the um, on page 346-349 this is when Elizabeth and um, Darcy are meeting and getting past their awkwardness with each other um, 346 um, Elizabeth has learned about all the good that Darcy had done secretly. He didn't want it disclosed, he didn't want it known, he did it um, for her. And it's clearly at a cost of self-denial. There's, there's no way he could have faced either Wickham or Lydia because of how shameful they were without humiliation to himself. Um, she thanks him because she's learned and she's sorry she says, if you will thank me, he replied, let it be for yourself alone that the wish of giving happiness to you might force to the other inducements which led me on. I shall not attempt to deny, but your family owe me nothing. Much as I respect them, I believe I thought only of you. Trying to help her. Um, over and over again, um, she keeps saying that the one thing that she... Um, feels more towards him, and she expresses it numerous times, his gratitude. Um, that she is so humbled that he would have um, looked out for her in that way. Let me stop. I, I could do more passages, but you've all read the book, and I think you've read it well enough to know. Let me go back to a couple of the questions I asked earlier. In whatever form you want to take them. Um, what does this have to do with faith? Let me offer one thing right now. 
you know that when Darcy and Elizabeth, I think Connie, I, I don't, because I remember last time we met, you, you were talking about falling into tears when you were at the end, and I was wondering, because I couldn't, I mean, I've told you, I, the last time I read it, I didn't remember the sort of Christian, but, but you had me wondering when you said, you, you know, you, want, you, you, wanted, you wanted to um, go get Keith in. Um, Am I right that the that the scene that brought you to tears was the scene in which they're asking forgiveness from each other? What brought you to tears? Well, when they finally got together, uh, when they I think when they both realized how silly and dumb and you know prideful that yep. they were, yep. and that they actually realized that and humbled themselves enough to finally see that they were in love, that they really liked each other. And and I, what took me in that that chapter if it, we're talking because there's a collection of there but is that they forgave each other and forgave themselves there was an act of forgiveness for, on the part of both and it was at that point that I, I said how in the world could you not teach this book I mean if there's a book about love and forgiveness there's, it's nothing in Christian terms openly Christian but the love that they feel is not like the love of other people um, the forgiveness that they offer then to me is extraordinary um, what does this have to do with faith? I think when you marry, it's the ultimate leap of faith. And I remember so clearly in our wedding ceremony, the priest talked about how marriage was learning to love God through each other. And I think just like the action of the book, when you start out in your marriage, you are totally centered on each other. And then the world steps in. And all of these things that happen over the years uh, teach you forgiveness and love. Or bitterness or... or yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 And don't leave out what I said earlier, that because I'm stunned that the other, these writers, Tony Tanner, whom I greatly... I think both of them are bright, and I especially admire Tony Tanner. But I read his thing and I thought, he missed it. Entirely missed it. What this book is about is a kind of love that, in a certain marriage, that other marriages don't have. And that it, you see it more clearly when you see all the things that got in the way and that kept them from pursuing it, you know, to get a husband or to get, you know, to get married. Darcy didn't need it and Elizabeth didn't need it, didn't want it. That there's something really special to the kind of love and it's helped by circumstances that these chance occasions take place that help bring it about. So once again, it's not just because they're determined to do it or they have this outside help, neither expected, uh, wasn't planned. So they're, e either critics are going to say chance, which lots of modern critics will say it's chance, accident, you know, good fortune. And you have to allow that. I mean, or you can, it might be, providence that there are graces being offered help beyond what you can do yourself because the whole novel is about not just relying on yourself because everybody's purged or Elizabeth and, and, and Darcy and Jane and Bingley are you know pretty much purged they, it's not just relying on yourself which is the great American virtue it's it's you come to stand in the world in a very different way more vulnerable, more open, more humbled, um, more capable of loving, 
So um, after Darcy's first proposal and after uh, Elizabeth reads his letter, it's like she's uh, she's performing an examination of conscience. If was, if she were a Catholic, you'd almost expect that she'd walk into a confession. Yeah. You know, because she's all of the uh, perceptions that she had about him, uh, she finds were uh, uh, on unstable ground. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, liking and good judgment, which is what she prided herself on. Good. Um, but one last thing before we stop, because I'm, I'm always glad if I can get out in time on it. Um, Jane Austen, the, the, um, the wars are going on the Napoleonic Wars, the wars between France and England. Wars are going on through the whole of her, the later part of her life, constantly. She talks about militia moving. There's something going on. She never goes into it. It's, it's really, a man wouldn't do that. A man would take those things up. Um, Melville does. Um, Dostoevsky does. Um, she doesn't. Her focus is not on historical movements, wars going on. She, she, she's too bright not to know what's going on and the significance, the implications of them. But she doesn't go into them at all. What she takes as her subject is domestic family love. And she goes into it more closely than any writer I've ever known. Henry James does it in a different way. But her grasp of details, her, the fineness of her mind that she can present things so finely, but in a sympathetic way. It's, it's sort of amazing to watch her because in, you know that we talked about this. In the first volume, in the opening chapters, they're all parodies of people. All these people are just very foolish. They think they know everything. They've got, they've, they're motivated by envy. Who's going to get married first? And who, what husband's going to have most money? And it's a parody. And, and we see people making judgments and um, how wrong those judgments are. Um, so in the beginning, we see impressions and people living on surface. At, at, as we move through the novel, we find ourselves going to depths. But at the center of them is Elizabeth and what she does, what she brings in her. So, and the, Vivian Jones, the editor, is making a point. It's, it's a position of an activist saying that woman is an agent of change. That's the way she sees um, Elizabeth. Is Elizabeth trying to make a change in what she's doing? One question. The, um, the corollary to that is, does she make a change whether she intended to or not? Does their marriage doing the change this social world? Because as we know, Jane Austen is very, very critical of this world with its rigid stratifications and class distinctions, sense of propriety and manners. Um, Tony Tanner, when in his introduction, says, talks about the novel, the form of the novel in terms of energy and um, what's the opposite of um, when you retreat and um, consolidate. That it, um, it's, it, it's a tension between energy and, and um, overleaping boundaries and restraint and keeping within boundaries. And I, I think that's a legitimate thing, but I think he also misses it. It's, it's, it's prim principally about 
this love between these couples that we can't find anywhere else. So my question is, Jane Austen is clearly aware of the wars. She knows what's going on. She's clearly aware that the world is changing. This landed aristocracy, aristocratic class, doesn't have the hold that it used to have. The mercantile class, the gardeners are. In Mansfield Park, we're going to see the same thing. Um, and in Mansfield Park, she's going to be dealing with locations because of the influence they have on people. Mansfield Park, London, all these places. She's showing that where you grew up, where you're, where you're nurtured, nature nurture, where you're formed, has a great deal of influence on what happens to your character. The evil couple in that character are products of London, of a mercantile world, of getting ahead, using people to get ahead. She's too bright. She, she knows this stuff. In Pride and Prejudice, Dewey say that, um, that she has Elizabeth Mary Darcy and they go off to this Pemberley world. Bingley's going to come and move in close. Is this a fairy tale world? Is she realistic? Jane Austen? Does their marriage do anything to change the social structure? How do we answer those questions? Is this a fairy tale romance? Is Jane Austen living in a fairy tale romance or is she a realist? How do we look at her? That's one question and the other is why does she write this book? But let me take that last. Is there change? How do we, how do we look at how it ends? Does it do anything to our faith? Wow. looking at our own judgments and yeah did I ask the wrong question here does it change the world like the social world because the, the, the question I'm asking here is the context of her world is social is societal she's aware of the war the, the wars She's aware of a social world changing. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to offer this in the context of the, the editor, the woman who wrote this, who's a feminist. Is their marriage bringing about a change? Is that their aim? Are they trying to? One, or did they bring it about even if they're not trying to? How do we look at the marriage? Yeah, I see them as being uh, instruments beyond their own will. So the, the love actually is uh, it's a manifestation of something the story is the triumph of death over social structure, over, over convention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does, I mean, in the end, um, you know, they exercise mercy. I mean, he supports Wickham from a distance, um, sets boundaries with Lady Catherine. They're very close to the gardeners. So, like, there's justice, there's mercy, there's like an overflow into the community, into the family. Does it say, change the social structure? Mm. Well, Kitty, Kitty became more sensible. Right. So there was a change there. There's individual 
I'm trying to be really careful now because of the feminist position and, and what I think is not a good reading of this book. It's really clear that there are local changes and domestic changes in that world because the love is real. Whether or not it changes the so social world to me is a harder question. I guess you could say they didn't change as much as escaped. Sorry? I guess you could say they didn't change as much as they escaped. Yeah, that, that's a good, that was actually where I wanted to go with my question, Chuck. So by ending up in Pemberley, because my, my, my thought about that, I'm sorry, you're helping me regain it. My thought about that when I was putting it in this terms was uh, Belmont in Shakespeare's Merchant, if you remember. Remember, Portia's the only one to come into that world from Belmont. Nobody, nobody in that commercial regime could have made that defense in court. I hope everybody's clear on that. It was her, a woman, a woman from an outside world, and they go back to it. And I'm wondering if there isn't something of that here, that Jane Austen is not um, utopian. She has no illusions about changing social structures the, the way activists do, because activists set out to change social structures that she's aware that changes do take place and they're fundamental, but you can't politicize love. Love's a transcendent power um, because it, it requires free will and suffering. You can't force people to that. But the, 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 I mean, the clearest direction in that way is socialism, and to me, socialism is a horror. It, it, it turns people in shadows. Jane Austen is not going there. I mean, what she's showing is what can happen in the circles in which individuals choose to love and what happens to them. Um, and the interesting thing, and I, this is one of the, I think it was one of the, one of the points that I made earlier in our epic somewhere, and I can't, right now, I'm, it's escaping me. Um, it's really bothering me too. That activists set out to change society to make it another form, the whole society. The poet's more modest and um, bolder. The question is, um, not only do changes take place with, in the context of these marriages and the effect they have on those in their immediate circle, um, do they affect the readers? Is the poet helping readers to change themselves when they see these things and didn't before. And once again, it's just the power of poetry to affect our hearts, to touch our hearts, to make us feel things, and to be more perceptive, to see more about the world. So that, and Karen said it, so that we, we can do things differently. We're more attentive, we try to be more careful, you know, things like that. How much the poet does that? And you can't, I don't think you can graph, you can put that on a graph and reduce it to statistics because some people are going to read and not get a thing out of this. Well, in some of the more idiotic characters, you can't think that Carolyn de Burr or that uh, Elizabeth's mother are going to change their way of viewing yeah. marriage and who should be married to who. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if Carolyn Bingley doesn't change it all that. Let me ask this question. Let, let me be. Let it be the because I want to. I've been trying to keep up with Bob and failing for four years, and we're there. What's Jane Austen's motive in writing this book? 
And I'm asking this seriously. I'm maintaining that these other writer, these editors have missed it, entirely missed it. This is fundamentally about love the way Shakespeare's comedies are, and women are at the center of it. Why did she write this book? To moralize? To point a finger? To blame? Like um, Collins? Um, she wrote it to shine a light on what love can do to people, how it can change people, which is kind of like what we're all supposed to do with our Christian faith anyway. Can you to add anything to that? I'm going to say it's an expression of her love. She does it freely. She, she, she takes delight in what she's doing. Remember that for the good of another, St. Thomas, virtue is doing the thing for the thing itself. To love another for that person's good. If you're going to play basketball, love basketball for itself, not because of what it does to your ego. I, can't, I grew up playing basketball. I can't watch basketball anymore. It just sickens me to watch. Just, I mean, just absolutely sickens me what's going on with athletes. If you love something, do it for the love of that thing, not greed. If you watch um, players, bas all of them, but if you watch ba particularly basketball, players come to their end of their contracts, they generally say, I want more than that guy's getting. <laughs> God, God. He's making $5 million a year, and it's not enough, for God's sake. Huh? Yeah, and, what, and they made that stupid decision. What, all it does is move the corruption down earlier. But, but the point I'm making, I believe, as, as my claim for most of the writers, that we were, she does it in love. She loves, she, it's an act of love to do this goodness and to take the pain she does. Would she have taken the pains otherwise? And how much pleasure or delight does she take in taking characters like Elizabeth and, and Darcy and working them according to her view of nature that it's possible for people who are that gifted to go through those ordeals and come out of them better. I can't believe she didn't take pleasure going through that. You know, living, watching them work out their destiny with their pride. I mean, it would have been easy for a lesser writer to just, you know, go to that first ball and say, what a stupid, arrogant man, I know, the end of the chapter. No, really, she, she fleshes it out. We're completely there. We go through the whole thing. We're a part of a large community. We're learning to see everybody in it. And at the center of the, are these two wonderful people, Darcy and Elizabeth, who really are wonderful. <coughs> I've loved them from the beginning. And watch her struggle to be real to them in a way that can bring delight to us. To learn to love the good of the thing itself. The book is about love, and I'm going to say it comes into being through love. There's a beautiful movie that's about, it's called Becoming Jane, and it's about the, the life of Jane Austen. Yeah. It's all fiction, but it's really well done and kind of leading up to her writing, especially in light of Melody. Before we leave, because I fail on this weekly, any thoughts, comments, or questions, or I'm laughing here because I know you started out when you said you were irritated in the first volume because you had all these stupid, and I, and I was laughing because there was such truth to what you say. This, but you know, but anyway, how did you come out on the book? Did did you enjoy it finally, or I I loved it. Like I said, I finished the last half of the book after Darcy proposed. 
I finished that in a week before I was grinding through it <laughs> trying to get it. But my my best thought is of Jane Austen, wherever she is smiling because in she changed Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy's prejudice and she changed your prejudice. <laughs> yes, yes she did. <laughs> yes she did. By the way, because we're, this is the end of our time with Jane Austen. Remember, my, for those of you who want to do reading, you can read any of her, Emma, Persuasion, um, Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park. They're wonderful reading. If you do want to read Jane Austen, see if you can get the Tony Tanner. You'll just get a little bit, I think, a little bit better intro on it. But, but all of those are wonderful novels. And I, I would encourage you to read Mansfield Park. I think it's the slowest. It's why it's not popular. It just doesn't have the lightness or movement. And it's one of the reasons I don't, I don't, Emma's not a favorite of mine, Persuasion's a little bit more sober, Sense and Sensibility is sober, but it's, it's, um, anyway, Mansfield Park has a depth to it that's, it's a little bit slower, but spiritually it's a deeper book. But you can read any of those. Those of you who are looking for reading, you can't go wrong reading her. If, if I can get past the existential crisis, and I'm not sure that I will, given what's happening to me, pray for me on this angiogram, please, this Wednesday. Um, if, if I end the course the way I would like, and I'm not sure that's going to be possible, um, we're going to end it with Faulkner and T.S. Eliot. And set next to Faulkner, next to Jane Austen, one of the, one of the members at um, St. Francis, <laughs> her comment was, he can't bring a sentence to an end. <laughs> <laughs> It's one, there's a, I think there's, I can't remember in which book, it may be Absalom, that's, I, I can't remember. Faulkner goes on in one sentence in probably 20, 30 pages. Um, it, it must drive grammarians, you know, teaching high school, wanting to discourage people from ever reading Faulkner because he doesn't know any grammar. Oh, BS. God, if anybody knew grammar, it's Faulkner, but, but he's trying to stay close to our spoken language and reality. So he's not making reality conform to grammar. He's trying to make grammar and language meet reality and get it onto the page. So if, if we can hold true, it'll be funny because Jane Austen is so proper, so articulate, um, so decorous. And in Faulkner, you um, well, I, how to put it, we won't be in that world anymore. <laughs> but anyway, okay, um, next week we start Eudora Welty. They're both, both stories. Why I live at the post office and petrified. Remember that type, petrified man. <laughs> why, why are the men petrified? <laughs> wonderful stories, wonderful stories. See you guys next week. See you guys next week.